0: WCNC Charlotte, this is Flashpoint, where power and politics collide and the tough questions get asked and answered.
1: Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint. I'm Hunter Signs filling in for Ben Thompson. Joining us for today's show, Charlotte City Councilman Republican Tark Bakari and Democrat Larkin Eggleston. The city of Charlotte has had a mask mandate for a few weeks now, but this week Mecklenburg counties went into effect countywide. The mandate is for inside public buildings in Mecklenburg County, regardless of vaccination status. CMPD plans to handle the enforcement of this, uh, but at the same time, there's voluntary compliance. That's what's expected as well as education for those who do not follow it. In most cases, officers will remind people who are not wearing masks inside public spaces that it's now required. Guys, thank you for joining us again. From businesses that you all have talked to, is this something that they want? It obviously has to be better than a shutdown again. Councilman Bakari, we'll start with you.
2: Yeah, well, I think the most of the people I've talked to, particularly a lot of small business owners, as well as my own personal feeling is, um, the way this came about was hasty and, and a little unnecessary. There was a lot of confusion. We were getting all kinds of calls. What does it mean? How do we enforce it? Like, are we expected to you know, report certain things? So there's a lot of questions. But I think the thing that frustrated most of us was, that there there was really no transparency as to how this decision making process came to be it happened behind closed doors um, where then the elected officials came out afterwards and made a, a, a variety of different announcements and I think at the end of the day there's a lot of us who aren't opposed to mask mandates if they're necessary but going through that rigorous process of UNDERSTANDING WHAT DATA THEY WERE LOOKING AT AND THEN WHAT TRIGGERS ULTIMATELY MIGHT REQUIRE ESCALATIONS. THOSE KINDS OF THINGS ARE IMPORTANT BECAUSE IT'S A SLIPPERY SLOPE IN GOING FROM A MASK MANDATE WHICH HAS SOME IMPACTS ON BUSINESSES TO A COMPLETE LOCKDOWN AND SHUTDOWN LIKE WE SAW PREVIOUSLY WHERE, pe- where PEOPLE ARE JUST LITERALLY AREN'T THEY'RE NOT GOING TO MAKE IT THROUGH ANOTHER ONE OF THOSE.
1: LARKIN, DO YOU THINK THIS IS SOMETHING THAT'S NEEDED AGAIN HERE IN THE CITY AND COUNTY?
3: Yeah, I think Tark kind of made the point I was going to make, which is that no, they're not excited about the mask mandate because inevitably on any given day, someone's going to come in and be a jerk about being asked to wear a mask and the business centers don't want to be the mask police. But what they definitely don't want is for us to have to close down again. And so I think that the city's goal and the business's goal is what can we do? Let's do everything we can short of trying to say people can't sit inside in restaurants or say that, you know, restaurants can only do to-go orders again. I don't know how we'll get through that if we get back to that point. So I think we all want to do anything we can to avoid that. I think masks is one of those things.
1: You know, it's one thing to put a mask or re put a mask uh, mandate in to effect, but enforcement and following it is a whole different conversation. You go to grocery stores, you go to some restaurants now that it's been in effect in the city of Charlotte and people just still aren't wearing them inside. Are people following the rules where you're going?
3: I see some of both. I think that part of it is just reminding folks because we were able for a couple of months to sort of get out of that habit if we were vaccinated and so part of it is reminding part of it is education this is not something we want to send cmpd around uh, chasing folks down for not wearing a mask obviously but i think the average person if if the health leaders in our community are, are telling us that this is something that can help us turn the tide again back in the direction we want it to go i think most of us will heed that advice and will say if this is what they're saying can help then let's try it
1: Councilman Bakari I know that well. both of you have probably heard from business owners about this and many other challenges that they have faced. A lot of business owners have told me that it shouldn't be their responsibility to try to enforce this in their place of business. So how should a mask mandate be working? I know that you say you don't want to find people. You want to go through education, but it's still a rule and people are still supposed to follow those.
2: You know, uh I- I think there's still a lot of skepticism about the, the the complete effectiveness of masks and a mask mandate. I think on one side of the coin, there's people who say, you know, I have read things from legitimate doctors that say, you know, they're, they're not as effective as they're claiming to be. And I think there's other people on the other side of that coin who say, well, if, if we're going to go mandate stuff, go mandate the vaccine, right? So I think there's a whole bunch of of, of of misunderstanding misconceptions in there. But at the end of the day, expecting small business owners to kind of play this, not just kind of mask police and and in, you know, referring things to CMPD, but also balancing, you know, what their employees are going through. I think this is something that is a personal decision that businesses should be making right now, while we should be figuring out what is the maximizing approach for vaccines. Uh, and how are we going to future proof this world that we live in right now for the new normal that exists? I said this a year and a half ago, and I'll say it again now. This is not a passing storm for one weekend. This is something that is more like a, a, a series of seasons that we're just going to have to get used to. And it can't be continual government mandates um, every time in a reactive force. It has to be a data based logical approach um, that is you know, transparent and in the light of day.
1: Yeah, one clarification there. We have heard Gibby Harris, the health director, say that masks are not an end all be all, but that they do help reduce the spread of the virus. But I want to move on to something that you got as, to. as
3: does the vaccine, which At we can de- I cannot. I cannot encourage people strongly enough to go out and get. That's how we move
1: past masks, correct? And 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 to that point, Charlotte employees are now getting paid to get the COVID-19 vaccine. City workers who get vaccinated by September 30th, they're going to receive $250. And if at least 75% of the city's workforce is vaccinated by that date, they will receive another $250. Incentives, though, of course, they really weren't working when the state was giving out $25 or even $100. According to the data Larkin, Um, the numbers of course were up a bit, but not much. So are these incentives going to work to your point to get people vaccinated?
3: I don't think $25 motivates people to do much of anything, so hopefully a a larger amount will motivate people better. But um, what I do think is that if it works and any of our employees get vaccinated because of that, even if it's a small number, then I think it's worth doing because we know that the impacts this has not only on the health and safety of our employees, the health and safety of the people that they interface with, and many of the city employees are interfacing with the public every single day, but we know that as, as any of them that get vaccinated, um, instead of getting the virus, paying them $250 to do that is a lot less costly than them having weeks at a time being out of work, um, filing insurance claims, things like that. So the, the cost of these folks that work with us getting sick is much, much higher than the cost of this incentive.
1: Tark, I know your Republican uh, colleague on the dais there, Ed Driggs, asked for more information and sounded a bit skeptical to all of this and for good reason, because it is a lot of money that could possibly be spent here. In your opinion, is there a better use of this money when it comes to also trying to get people vaccinated?
2: Yeah, I mean, 100%. Like, here's one example is let's figure out ways Uh, to help retool our small businesses or our workforce to exist in a new normal of this kind of post-COVID world we live in. So giving uh, the people who are not vaccinated now, likely it's not a small amount of money that's like, oh, that's going to teeter me over the edge. There's a lot of people who don't care or care, but they care like given the fact that, you know, one of them just recently got FDA approval, right? Things like that. But there are are things with risk associated with them. People make decisions and I'm not trying to um, throw someone under the bus for saying, I'm not gonna get the vaccine. I also don't want that to become something where people who will do it don't go do it because of that. So Mm -hmm. I think we all need to take a breath and step back away from that. I also think there's a bigger item here that is at play for our entire economy, which is, for a year and a half plus, large chunks of our entire nation's workforce have gotten very comfortable being able to work from home. And that's something that um, there's a great awakening. We've been watching this in FinTech and tech and development, and it applies to every other industry as well as city government, which is um, there's a a moment where maybe after Labor Day, as we see a lot of these companies coming back, um, where we're gonna see who exactly is coming back And who's going to use COVID, use vaccines or masks or or any other reason to say, I'm not coming back. And there's a lot of people that believe that's going to be a large number of folks.
3: Well, there are a lot of- We don't have the option with a lot of our city departments to let people work from home. You can't pick up garbage from home. You can't put out fires or, or respond to crime from home. And so we've got folks who have to be out in the field, who have to be interfacing with folks in our community. And we need to make sure that they are and the people they interact with are as protected as possible.
1: But Larkin, to that, if essentially the city realistically just wants everyone to get vaccinated, as does the county, why not just mandate the vaccine? We keep talking about an indoor mask mandate. Why not be like some of these other cities, some of these other companies that are requiring their employees to be vaccinated?
3: Well, I don't think I could say for sure that we are not going to get to that point, but I think we would always rather use a carrot than a stick. We'd always rather have it be something that's positive that leads people to get that instead of something that they might view as negative. This,
1: this would this city would let you me support you a vaccine mandate?
3: If we get to the point where that's the only thing we can do that we believe protects our workforce and the people that they interact with, um, it's certainly something I'd have to consider. Right now, I do prefer that we try to find a way to incentivize it. Tarek, what about you?
2: Let me let me tell you something right now this is 100 step number one and step number two is coming which is the mandate there's no doubt in my mind knowing how the city operates step one is the carrot step two is the stick it is coming that decision will have to be made and and i don't think they have contemplated how complex of a decision that is that's going on in all of our fortune 100 companies right now that same sticky situation And I mean, all right, so where do you draw the line? Previous cancer patients who have um, deficient immune systems, well, are you gonna require them or can they work from home? This is a very slippery slope of which, A new normal, right in in this world, isn't going to dictate. We're going to have one season of solving it. We have to have a sustainable solution for the long term that people can both contemplate the safety of those around them, but also their own personal choice and what risks they're willing to take.
1: Sure, and and likely, like there is religious exemptions, there could also be those other types of health exemptions as well. But guys, uh, I got to wrap it up here, at least for this break. Uh, Stay with us more with Councilman Bakari and Eggleston on the other side of this commercial break. Welcome back. It was years in the making, but Charlotte's Gold Line streetcar is finally open for business. It is set to be a game changer for people in Charlotte's west side. The Gold Line runs from Beatty's Ford Road through Uptown all the way to Elizabeth. Larkin, I know if this was a real thorn for those in your district, but are people actually going to ride it from east to west? I think
3: they are. I was out yesterday um, on a couple of occasions at it, seeing, you know, who was on it, seeing what people were using it for. Uh, I got a chance to ride it last night uh, after dinner over to near the Johnson C. Smith campus to the new Rita's Italian Ice over there to get a little frozen treat. Uh, And there were people on it at all times of day. There were folks who had ridden it, students who'd ridden it from Johnson C. Smith into Uptown just to grab coffee and just to check it out and people were impressed with how nice and new and clean and and quiet the cars are uh, compared to the old replica trolleys that we used to have out there so i think people will use it it is fare free through the end of this calendar year so i would highly encourage people to get out there and test it uh, themselves and see what they think but it's going to be a great way to get to uh, football games that we got coming up this fall a great way to get to soccer matches and, and baseball games so um, a lot easier and a lot cheaper than having to park in Uptown. And I, I hope people will utilize it. But I know they're excited that uh, we've, we've mostly gotten to the end of the tunnel here on the construction piece.
1: Yeah, a- as you mentioned, it is free for the rest of this year, but then there will be a fair. Um, I have seen countless people jump on the blue line north to south for free. Basically, they don't pay for it. So Tarek, do you think people are actually going to pay for it? And, and how is the city going to enforce that payment?
2: well i mean probably not maybe somewhat i i think it's kind of irrelevant because um of, of this broader point which is um i we need to start pitching these these transformational projects for what they are and look no further than south end we i was here in the early stages of all of that uh, larkin was as well i remember it this was pitched as a transformation uh, transformational transportation solution And and all you have to do is walk over to South End to see that it's transformational, but not from a moving people perspective. It's from all the development that occurred around it. This is an economic development tool. And what will happen and what has already happened along this line that that we've already seen now to date, but even more so over the next year is gonna be amazing. But what we must start doing is is calling a spade a spade. And when we start calling something an economic development, Uh, solution, we start weighing it amongst other economic development solutions. We start measuring it as such, but as long as we start pretending these are transportation solutions, those get in the way of us talking about real 20 and 30 year transportation solution needs like 5G and autonomous vehicles and tunneling and all the other things that are actually potentially going to move people on the ground, under the ground and in the air. It's certainly not this, although the economic
3: development impacts are indeed, you know, undeniable. I think it's both. I think it's both. And it's certainly an economic development tool. We've seen what that's done on the blue line. We've already seen some of what's that's done with the gold line, even before it opened. And it's not a transportation solution in that it is going to somehow you know, cure uh, traffic congestion when people are coming back into the office in Uptown. But it is a traffic, I mean, it is a transportation solution for any individual who chooses to use it, who can walk to a station, get on and ride in on the light rail or the streetcar, any of these transportation modes that we've created, it gives them a better way to get around. So it is a transportation solution for the people who choose to use it.
1: I do have to move on to another very important thing for many people here in the city of Charlotte. Now that city leaders have approved the Charlotte Future 2040 Comprehensive Plan, all eyes are now on the Unified Development Ordinance, otherwise known as the UDO. So what exactly is that? Simply put, the UDO is a set of regulations designed to guide our city's future development. This UDO will guide growth to bring to life the vision of the 2040 plan's policies. That UDO also builds from other city policies, including the Transportation Action Plan and the Strategic Mobility Plan, which the city just held listening sessions for. I know I just said a lot there. It can get really nitty and gritty, but this is super important. Why is it so important to everybody, regardless if you live in a neighborhood or or even if you have a business here in town, Larkin?
3: well it's important because it's going to shape the way that our city grows for the next several decades and so it will codify the vision that we set forward in the comprehensive plan but it's it's also got to do a better job than we've done historically of making sure that we don't have one plan that says one thing and another that contradicts it and oftentimes that's what we've run into and so we've got to make something that builds the city we want to live in but also makes it clear for the people who are helping us build it exactly what they're supposed to be doing and where and when and so that's gonna involve a lot of community input in terms of play, determining place types in certain parts of our city, where we want industrial, where we want office, where we want mixed use, which is going to be a much more predominant thing than we've been accustomed to, where we used to have all of our uses separated. Now we like to see a lot of them together. So this is going to be the document that, that guides the way we head as a city. And, and so it is critically important that people get engaged
1: you were critical. I think it's fair to say you were skeptical of how we got to this point when we were talking about the 2040 plan. What are your expectations going forward now that we are really getting into what matters here?
2: Well, I mean, my expectations are low, unfortunately, because I saw exactly what the writing on the wall was for our last eight plus months of battle on this, which was Um, We had a planning director and certain forces that wanted to have what rightly should have been the UDO discussion, which we're entering um, at a more strategic vision level, aspirational level of the comp plan that said, hey while we have an aspiration to do x and y very specifically we're going to do things like abolish single family zoning and we're going to use community benefit agreements to do things that have never been done before nor nor do we know how to do them so unfortunately instead of going and looking at the impacts to affordable housing in an economic impact analysis and then bringing forth that tactically inside the udo discussion which is coming up they've already done it and when we raise the the five of us district reps that were against those very things when we raise those concerns again i guarantee you they're going to put the heisman hand up and say we've already we've already litigated that with you um we won that conversation move on move on and that's exactly what's going to happen so the only thing i know how to do at this point is not let them do the other thing they did to us which was take data points and craft certain things they liked the way they looked and feed that to us like we're mushrooms in the dark, essentially. So um, I, I'm I'm going to make sure that we fight to say, here are the metrics for community engagement, which include the development community, include neighborhood organizations that were highly critical of this. And here's how we're going to measure you staff, uh, your success, and what's happening on the actual engagement front. It's all we can do at this point.
1: Larkin, I see your smirk, but sadly I gotta give Tark the last word there. We are out of time. Thank you both gentlemen for joining us here. More Flashpoint coming up on the other side of this break. On Monday, the last U.S. military plane carrying the last American troops left Afghanistan, capping off 20 years of conflict there. President Biden said over 17 days, the US completed its largest airlift ever, evacuating more than 120,000 Americans and allies. However, we unfortunately lost the lives in the process as well. 13 US service members were killed in a suicide attack near the Kabul airport. The Queen City is seeing a significant influx in Afghan refugees following the latest unrest. The founder of Welcome Home, a Charlotte-based organization that helps refugees resettle, says a rise in resettlement in the Carolinas has been an issue for the last four years. WCNC Charlotte's Fred Shropshire explains.
2: Since 2017, we've had actually an influx of Afghan refugees enter the greater Charlotte area.
0: For four years, Amar Ghani and volunteers with Welcome Home have helped support families arriving via the Carolina Refugee Relief Agency. But lately, the arrival rate has gone from helping about three families a month to as many a week. With everything from grocery runs to furnishing apartments.
2: Very basic things,
3: you know, oh, um, they need a coffee table. They need a lamp. They don't have utensils because
1: they're coming with absolutely nothing.
0: Aid usually comes in phases from offering the basics like food and shelter to learn skills like cultural awareness and conversational English.
2: There was a a very thin line that separated me from being in a situation that hundreds of thousands of Afghans are in right now today.
0: Isra Mohammed, who volunteers with Welcome Home as a translator, is U.S. born, but her parents fled Afghanistan during the Soviet invasion. She says beyond the initial help refugees receive, the United States needs to do a better job treating newcomers like human beings. For starters, making it easier to become permanent U.S. citizens.
2: I feel like I've been begging for Afghans to be viewed as humans for my entire existence. It's uplifting to feel support from people that had no connection to Afghanistan whatsoever, but it's not enough.
1: All of this happening just before the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Next week's show will focus on that anniversary. Be sure to stay with us. We'll be right back. And a quick note here, we will forever be in debt to those 13 U.S. service members lost over in Afghanistan on a mission that capped off 20 years over in the Middle East. Thanks for joining us here on Flashpoint this week. Ben will be back next weekend. Have a good rest of your day.